it used to be binary, racist or not racist, right? And we all prided ourselves in like, I'm not racist. Like, good job. Like, you've made it to not racist. And, and we, we put it to bed. But now we're realizing that being not racist is passive. And in order for any change to happen in any system, it needs to have an action. And true change comes from true action. You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... Kendra Holtmore, PhD student at Boston University, and I grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. Rachel Jackson, rabbi at Agudas Israel, Hendersonville, North Carolina, and I grew up in Los Angeles until I was eight, and then in the middle of nowhere outside of Colorado Springs, Colorado. Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, and I grew up in suburban New Jersey. Uh, Ian Benz, associate professor of elementary science education at UNC Charlotte, and I grew up as a military brat, an army brat in Germany. All right. So like we, or like I mentioned last week at the beginning of that episode, we wanted to enter into this new mini-series on the scientific and religious interplay of race and racism and structures of white supremacy through our own particular lenses. We're going to be very careful not to tell somebody else's story. We don't want to pretend like we have invented something. We don't want to... Uh, we don't want to walk into something that we read up on on Wikipedia beforehand and act like experts in something where people have been speaking truth to power for generations. And so as a way of situating ourselves, we wanted to start this episode by kind of telling a little bit of our own stories as to how we first came in contact with the ideas of race, of systemic racism, of becoming awoken to the reality around us. Because all of us who are here today, plus Adam, who is not here with us today, are white. And so there's a lot of unlearning that had to happen. And so we wanted to kind of approach a lot of the definitions today in that lens from where we can speak from. So I wanted to start today by telling you about the weirdest Christmas of my life. This was a, I wish I could remember which year or how old I was, but something about this year, my older sister, Kate, started to become aware of the fact that she was white. And by that, I mean, bland, without a culture, without a connection to something. Now, we grew up in Jersey, like I said, and Jersey, I think, has like 75% of all Italian Americans live in that itty bitty state. We're not Italian Americans, kind of. We don't have like a distinctive European ancestry from one country that has like 
traditions and accents and some great auntie who came from the motherland or whatnot. And so she had this kind of awakening that we were just like generic almost. And that kind of bled into, into my thinking as well. And this was one of the years where the internet was starting to become a thing. And I got my first AIM um, screen name, AOL Instant Messenger, mm -hmm. um, which <laughs> I, my first screen name was Iroquois26, because I was very proud of the fact that I was part Native American, that my great-great-grandmother was a Native American princess which is the story that every white person gets told, um, even though most tribes don't didn't have monarchies. Um, and I have zero Iroquois in me anyway. I just thought it was a much cooler name. Um, when I found out that, that the story was that we were Blackfoot um, from out in the Pacific Northwest, I, I made my first Zanga account, my uh, online journal, uh, Siksika, which was the than their name for themselves. Uh, very proud of this fact that I somehow had retrieved from the air that because somewhere in my ancestry was somebody who belonged to this tribe, therefore I could claim that I had some kind of connection to it. And did so completely ignorant of the effects of that, that, that somehow if I had a little bit of DNA in me that came from from people who lived in this particular place and that allowed me entry into their world, which is very white way of thinking. So that year, my sister started complaining that we don't have any like fun cultural traditions around Christmas, especially because what are we even? We're just white Americans. We don't have anything interesting or fun about us. We have no heritage. We're just white Americans. We are just blank pieces of paper, essentially. So my mom, at this point, she's like, no, no, you're Bavarian. We're Germans. My people, we came from Bavaria. We, The Moore family who wrote Silent Night. And, you know, this is our people. My mom and I had gone to Germany and visited our people's homeland. We went to the um, to the cemeteries and tried to find names of Moors than we imagined we were related to. And so that year, my mom put on, without telling anyone, a Bavarian Christmas. <laughs> so you can imagine the three of us, children, waking up, just excited for presents. Santa Claus came, woohoo! And we came out into the kitchen, and there's my mom dressed in what I remember as lederhosen. It probably was not. I think that's what men wear. It it was very. There were. It was very German, but like not the sort of thing that Germans wear out to lunch. A, or uh, was it a, a dirndl? I don't know. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Maybe. Later, later Rosen's what the men wear and darn. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. We're not actually Bavarian, so she may have been wearing Lederhosen. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, and I feel like there was German music playing and there was like German breakfast. And uh, I, I wish that I could remember all of the details because God bless her for responding to that 
that kind of ache within my sister and I for a distinctive ethnicity, an ethnic culture, uh, a racial identity. Uh, God bless her for trying to manufacture that. I just remember the feeling it gave me, which was, well, awkward first, <laughs> and then an even deeper sense of lack because mm. the artificiality was just so clear <laughs> that this is not authentic. I'm sorry, this is not our culture, and I'm not sure it's anyone's culture. And just further drove home this feeling that we were American Caucasian mutts with no distinct culture outside of mayonnaise, right? Um, <laughs> and it took me a long time to realize that that feeling in and of itself, that I don't have a culture, is baked into the very framework of white supremacy. Because what that says is that what I am as an American white man is the default. I am the generic template for humanity. And then everyone else is me plus a little add-on, hmm. right? Like that's that's at the the core of of uh, of white supremacy. So you know when a when a black person in theology approaches the Bible and and theology from their own perspective, we have to call that black liberation theology. We just can't call that theology. Right? When a woman comes at theology, I, I had this uh, feminist theology professor in seminary who said for the longest time she didn't understand that she was a feminist because she just thought she was a Christian, but then <laughs> only later had to realize that she had to add that uh, that label to distinguish herself because apparently she wasn't the default. You know, this is the only country yeah. where where I <clears throat> get to be called an American. But the people who actually lived here beforehand have to have the Native American. Like they mm -hmm. have to have an adjective to describe their, their self because even the people who lived here before are not seen as the default Americans, right? And so like you have to say it's an African-American, an Asian-American, but what am I? I'm an American right? because I'm the default. And I think it that feeling that I had that Christmas, that gnawing feeling of not having a defining culture that other people were able to celebrate. And, you know, and I know this is a pretty common experience among white Americans because we have people pushing for like white history month and white pride. And that really only recently was given voice inside of, inside of me that I do have a culture and I do have an ethnicity, as it were, which is a word we'll unpack. And me imagining that I don't is a big problem. It's it's one of the ways that we have, we white men especially, have dehumanized other people and given license to um, oppress and to create structures that continue to oppress. <laughs> So would anybody um, would anybody like to sh to kind of jump in with a, a story of coming to terms with who 
You are? Um, I can. And this this has been really a I mean, I'm 39 and I'm still very much on this journey. And I struggle with this. So, as I said in our intro, I was born in Los Angeles, which is extremely diverse in culture, ethnicity, um, socioeconomic ways, right? It is, but I left there when I was eight. So I don't really remember it, but I, I brought that in in the intro because that's where my parents came from, right? That was their upbringing. So they were able to then pass it along to me. My dad is actually an immigrant from Australia, and he got there because after the after World War II or during World War II, that's where his family moved. That's where they went to find safety was Australia. So he was technically Australian, but only because he was born there, if that makes sense. And then we moved to outside of Colorado Springs. And this was in the 80s. For anyone that's not familiar, Colorado Springs is like... Wonder Bread in the bread aisle. Like it, it could not get whiter. And we lived outside of Colorado Springs, which meant it did get whiter. Um, I And so my elementary school, you know, I, I have brown hair, uh, brown, very dark brown hair. Um, actually, like all of us here, Adam's the only one that has lighter hair. So anyway, the four of us today are, are brunettes of some, some hue. And that's what made me different. <laughs> that's <laughs> just throwing that one out there. Okay. So that was my, those were some of my formative years, but I'm Jewish. And that kept me on the outside for a very long time. And I held on to that and I held it as though I understand the plight of otherness. I understand the the discrimination that someone else feels because I too can be discriminated in these ways. Or as a woman, I'm like, I got the feminism issue, right? That I didn't get jobs for as a chemist because it said Rachel instead of Robert. And so I was like, I've got this. I'm obviously this is an anachronistic term. I'm woke. And I was fooling myself. Because I was I was putting my story on someone else's story. I was trying to give sympathy when what's really needed is awareness and empathy. Not putting myself in their shoes, but hearing their story and and not assuming that it's my story. And so I've really that's where I've come to in these last several years. And now I live in the mountains of Western North Carolina. Um where the population of white is 85% in my county. Um, and so my, my transition and my story has really just been removing my, my minority self um, as my lens. Because there's this really strong question of, are Jews white? And it's something that so many Jewish pe- people are struggling with. And that in and it itself is a problematic issue for Jews because that is an ashkenormative, which means that only the Jews that came from Europe of some ilk, whether that was from, you know, from England to Russia and everywhere in between, 
their skin color is white. But what about all of the Yemenite and Ethiopian and Mizrahi Jews whose skin color is not white, but they are still Jewish? Right. So the idea that even the question of are Jews white ignores that there are people whose skin color is black who are also Jewish. And so that intersection um, is something that the Jewish community itself is is um, being aware of more fully and more forcefully because we have to. And it's just it's a really hard question because so Zach was struggling with the ethnicity and, and the culture. Like what if you're just a generic piece and you're not sure what your culture is, okay. But then I think there's a difference of how are we defining culture, which is something that a peoples have and that you can experience. So you can experience black culture. You can experience Asian culture. And I know these are extremely broad strokes that I'm saying, right? But there is a culture surrounding that. You can experience Jewish culture. There is that piece. And anyone can experience that. The ethnicity, I think, comes from a, if you look at your DNA, what is the ethnicity talking about? Um, And that's where a lot of Jews are like, yeah, we're we're Jewish. Like you, can, we've got mitochondrial DNA that that can show the Jewish line of things. So especially for like, there's a particular, there's different levels of, there's different levels of Jews. It's really awful when I hear myself <laughs> saying this because because I don't believe it. But um, it's what it's what my history has been. So if you if you look in the Bible, especially you get that that middle book of Leviticus, and it was written by the Levite priests who were just all about themselves. And they're like, the priests get to do this. Right. And they're the Kohanes and the Levites and then the rest of us Israelites. Well, the Kohanes and the Levites had to really only marry each other. And that's how it's been for 3,000 years. And so if you're really only marrying other Levites and Kohanes, guess what? Your mitochondrial DNA is going to show those particular uh, DNA uh, differences, not just our lactose intolerance, <laughs> or, um, but like Tay-Sachs and other genetic variations by being in a small group. And that that sort of cultural trauma of being a people without a homeland, of being constantly kicked out, of being hated no matter where we go and what that looks like. But at the same time going, but my skin color isn't necessarily making that harder, but my ethnicity and my culture do make it harder. So I know I've been rambling, but those those nuances of ethnicity and culture I think are really important to to discuss when we're looking at this. And every one of us, even someone who is of a minority of some way, needs to look at themselves and say, what other biases do I have? And and that's what I've been doing. I've been saying, okay, what what are my biases? Putting my own putting my own story aside and making room for other stories. Yeah, it's interesting, Rachel, to 
to be thinking about this. Um, I just to like sort of respond a little bit as I say, I guess every week, um, I'm a student at Boston University and our religion department uh, shares a building with um, the Elie Wiesel Center Mm -hmm. uh, for Judaic Studies. And so a lot of um, the professors in the religion department and in the Elie Wiesel Center share share some professors and many of those professors are Jewish and, you know, teach a variety of things. But whenever we recently had a a town hall meeting between the faculty and students about the just recent uh, world events and protests and, you know, this question came up of like, what can we do as a department to be better educators and teachers and it was, a, I think, on the whole, a good conversation, but you could hear this struggle. I think a couple of professors voiced this question of um, how do we talk about whiteness in the context of being like Jewish professors? And I think that, of course, there are threads of social justice for different people groups. Like, we should all be working together, and it's like, you know, something that is um, like injustice is woven together in many complicated ways. And so I think it's like a fair question in a lot of ways, but it was also really interesting to see how that conversation, which was facilitated by one of our faculty members who is a Muslim woman who is white. um, And so she has her own like, you know, people respond to her in interesting ways too to have her facilitate this conversation and to respond, I think, in a really fair, like, even-handed way to just acknowledge the this struggle and, like, the history of Jewish people and how that is complicated in their, like, present-day experiences, but to also say, which is what you were saying, Rachel, at the end, to, like, look at the the moment of what is happening and to you know, the the protests in the streets that are about like police brutality, how that like each moment calls for a different like force or a different amount of energy and focus mm-hmm. for like black people in this moment. And in this moment, maybe it's more about like Jewish people. In this moment, it's maybe more about women and that those are all really important. But the, you know, this question of whiteness is I don't know it's it, it's hard sometimes I think I have it clear in my head the difference between like race and ethnicity which I think is also what you are asking Rachel is like how do we define these things um but then sometimes when I try to say it out loud I realize that it, it's like not that clear because I think on the face of it when I hear anybody who's white like ask if I'm white, I'm like, yeah, well, people look at you and think you're white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, of course, we're all white. But I think it's also true that, like, in one context, I might look at Rachel and think, like, yeah, she's white. And I might even assume she's Christian or, like, mm-hmm. an atheist or something. But that is, like, out of context or assuming that Rachel would be, like, in my context. But if I was, you know, somewhere else, then, like, what biases might come out in in ways that I might like code her differently. So yeah, I just wanted to like add that as something interesting that I, Mm. as someone who is 
from a, a Christian background was able recently to like experience this question um, our Jewish faculty were expressing in the context of a town hall meeting. Well, we didn't start talking about race until the Enlightenment, at, like, and it was it was it was done in terms of like scientifically these are how people are different. Ethnicity was more sociological as to how they their culture and their traditions and their belief systems. And so it was pretty finely delineated then until we started actually sequencing DNA and found out that, oh, it turns out that you can't tell a person's race <laughs> by looking at their DNA. Right. And we're actually absurdly similar in every way, shape, and form because humanity as it evolved, it, it pulsed you know, for the past 10,000, 10, 20,000 years, uh, I'm further back, sorry, 100,000, 200,000 years of, you know, we all started in Ethiopia and then we, some people left and then some people came back and then some people left and different people left and some people came back and we interbred with, you know, Neanderthals and this over here. And then we came back and we moved around and nobody's been in one place long enough to become genetically that different than anyone else. Right, and yeah. so now we realize that they're both social constructs, but one was created with the guise of science. And so it's hard for us to distinguish the two of them in any meaningful way now. Yeah. Can I, yeah. Can I add? I'm sorry, Kendra, I keep interrupting you. No, go ahead. Um, I just wanted to add the science piece of that that Zach is talking about. This, this was happening in the early 1800s, um, really pushed by Samuel Morton. And I'll, I'll post some stuff in the show notes, um, but he's really the one that came up with this idea that there's five different races and five different acts of creation. And you could tell that based on your head size, mm. right? Um, craniometry, right? Where the, I was just demonstrating my head, but you guys can't see me. So <laughs> never mind. Um, so, and he... He's the one that came up with the five terms. And again, I, I apologize. I do not believe in these terms, but I think it's I think it's appropriate that we use the terms that were used 200 years ago. Um, so he used the term Caucasian for the most intelligent. Then he used Mongolian um, for East Asian. And he said that they were ingenuous and susceptible of cultivation, one step down. And then you had the Southeast Asians, followed by Native Americans and Ethiopians at the bottom. Well, put that in context of America in the 1800s, and voila, you have this understanding of slavery and, and the, um, the backing for it, using Morton's quote-unquote science to back the appropriateness and the, nece the necessity of slavery. So... And that's that's where this this race as science came from is about two hundred years old, and it's taken a very long time to break that that there that these differences are frankly made up and really bad science. So sorry, Kendra. No, yeah, I wanted to add to that too, just to say that like whenever we throw out something as a social construct, I think for some like in some people's heads that. I think can be confusing because they're like, well, if it's a social construct, doesn't that just mean it's made up and it's not real or impactful? And that's not the case. Like, I think most of what humans do is like made of social constructs. 
But those things are still very real and impactful because we treat them as such. And to say that, just like give a couple examples of what it means when we say that race is a social construct. Somebody who in America would easily um, be, or no, somebody who in um, Brazil, for example, who may easily be identified as white or as some other like non-black descriptor, um, like they're, they're not dark enough to be considered black. If that person came to America, they might very easily be identified as like, oh, that person looks like a black American because we sort of like flatten out what it means to be black in the U.S. There are many shades uh, of like black Americans. And there's even, you know, we can have a conversation about like colorism, like within the identity of black, um, mm-hmm. lighter skinned black people have uh, been treated better sometimes than like darker skinned black people. And that's, it's like, you know, a separate conversation. But the the point is that, um, you know, any, you know, your average like white person walking down the street would see a number of varieties of black skin and just flatten out the descriptor to say that is a black person. Whereas in other countries, the categorization of what it means to be black or brown um, or white or light skinned, it just, it's different. Even though, yes, of course, we all have like physical skin with the biology and, you know, genetic code. And so, that that's the part that seems like, okay, well, but can't there be a science of race? We have like melanin and stuff like that. But it's not, it's more about this perception and um, a culture plays into these categorizations. And so they're never just about like the actual skin color, even though um, there are like large patterns that we can see across countries. But um, yeah, so I think that's, one example, like the difference between like Brazilian and um, U.S. citizens and how that mm-hmm. like what what black can mean in those contexts is like a little different. Homo sapiens haven't been uh, separate enough for long enough to develop into different subspecies the way that, you know, black bears and grizzly, grizzly bears did. There's different survival mechanisms certain adaptations prove to be more effective for survival in certain places. So mm-hmm. the Homo sapiens that went into the colder climates, the ones who had lighter skin were able to absorb more sunlight and have more vitamin D and live better in the cold climate. So their skin got whiter. But there's, there's, a, uh, there's a group of people, um, and I'm called the, uh, the Sama Bajau, in Southeast Asia that can hold their breath underwater for 13 minutes. They're a a people group that have subsisted for many, 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 many years on deep sea diving and foraging. And so researchers have found they have much larger spleens than other people, which leads to better oxygenation in the blood. And so there was an evolutionary pressure and an isolated enough community to have a slight variation that favored certain people for survival. And they were isolated long enough that they had a little itty bitty difference. And that's like as diverse as we get in terms of, of strong pressure for survival. But that, that doesn't even make them, uh, 
like the difference between one of them and their neighbors a hundred miles away are still smaller than like the difference between two breeds of dog or like two types of of uh, of chickens or something like we are still more similar even though there are things that we can see that are different about us than otherwise because we just have not been separate enough for long enough to have our our genetics diverge enough for mm-hmm. us to be separate yeah i mean you can see the same thing in the nepalese right who are living at thousands of feet up um and so when people from not that area, try to climb Mount Everest. <laughs> um, and they're like, I can't breathe just getting there to base camp at 18,000 feet. And they're like, we got this. And like throw 60 pounds on their back, right? And they're climbing. And the rest of us are just like, I need to breathe, <laughs> right? And lung capacity and l- the ability to have less oxygen in your blood as a trait, just among those people, or the trait among many in, um, I have to look at the exact study for where this population is. Having sickle cell anemia is a great trait because it prevents malaria. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are peoples that have higher rates of sickle cell anemia because you want that. But again, that's it's it is all skin deep. So in the United States, we generally tend to think of sickle cell anemia as a a problem that affects African-Americans disproportionately. But if you look globally, there, it does not, it doesn't matter. Any place that has high levels of malaria has high levels of sickle cell, despite no matter yep. what the skin color may be. Um, that trend goes away, globally speaking. And you did not uh, share at all about your experience. So I want to make sure that you get in here. <laughs> yeah, uh, I just thought it was very, all of it was interesting. So, you know, as I said at the beginning, growing up as a military brat in Germany, I had a very different experience of what it was like uh, growing up as an American outside of the US. And what was interesting, though, is when my parents divorced, when I was eight, my dad moved back. I moved to North Carolina. My mom was a teacher, American, uh, over there. And so we stayed. And um, it was always interesting coming home every summer to my dad's and realizing that the kids that I lived near were all white. Um, and everyone that I played with was, was white. And noticing even, too, that there was a dividing line in the town itself, where it seemed like this is where the, the more of the white families lived and this is where more of the black families lived. And I just remember thinking to myself, this is so weird because growing up, like I said, in Germany and military, it, none of, it just didn't seem to matter to us as children. Now I, I am fully aware that that is probably my privilege as a white male coming out that I just didn't see those things. But me bringing that up is something that I didn't fully understand what that meant until I went through this uh, workshop a few years ago in uh, September of 2017 uh, called uh, Racial Equity Workshop. It was a two-day experience 
that some of my colleagues in my department had gotten a small grant for uh, to pay for our registration. And, and it was an eye-opening experience. Prior to that, I thought I had a decent understanding of American history. <laughs> and then when I was done with it, I realized that I had the whitewashed version understanding of American history. And it did such an incredible job of explaining how white supremacy, white privilege was in all, even our founding documents. And when we, and even when the first Europeans got here and it just, it was just un, unreal what it was like to, to see all of that, like the effort that was put in from the very beginning of our country. And that just really woke me up to recognizing that, oh my gosh, I, I never saw this before. And so I, kind of finally realized what right white privilege was that day and also male privilege. You know, I'd always kind of recognized that, but to put all that together was really interesting. And I remember during that experience, it, it, they did such an incredible job with it because they really in, opened us up at the very beginning. And it was people from all, all areas of the community. It wasn't just professors. There was like two or three of us and there was maybe 20 in there. There were many people from law enforcement were there either police officers or people from within um, the court system, uh, juvenile detention type systems and stuff. And and what was really nice is they did such an incredible job of setting up a safe space for open conversation. And then some of the things I struggle with, we talked about like culture, like you were mentioning, Zach. And at one point, and I was looking through my pictures because I wasn't sure if I took any of, of this uh, chart that we created, but they had us kind of talk about because predominantly people in there were either black or white and they had, you know, people who were black describe their cultural experiences. And then like, and, but they didn't say describe your cultural experiences. I forgot exactly how they did it, but then they had the white people describe things too. And it was like the distinction between talking about music and food and that kind of stuff and what white society is and, and, or white culture and black culture was just so fascinating. I remember kind of saying, I don't, I don't like this side, which was the white side. Hmm. And they kept trying to point to me and say, but do you understand that's your white culture? And, and I just kind of realized at that moment, I was like, oh my gosh. And then, and they loved the fact that I remember them saying when I was like, yeah, but this side, the, the descriptors that people provided of black culture were just so much more interesting. Um, and I really wish I'd taken a picture of it because it was just so fascinating. And then another thing I really struggled with during that experience was they talked about the whole idea of white, the white savior mentality of recognizing that it, it's not beneficial or really helpful for me as a white male to go into a, a black community and, and present myself as I'm here to save you. Um, I'm, I, I am going to lead you away and help you all and stuff. And, a knight and in shining armor. And, that's right. And it, and it wasn't that I was saying that I wanted to do that, but it, they were even talking about, you know, they used some examples about churches having like a soup kitchen once a year, or, you know, th those types of things and how, how beneficial is that really? And I remember I constantly, I just kept pushing back a little bit saying, right, but we can't stop doing that. Why can't we do both? Right. Why can't it be that you're still trying to provide those types of resources for people in need, but also finally realizing that the potentially the best way that I can help uh, the systemic racism in our country is to realize that I need to do it from within the white male community, that I cannot try to be part of a different community. I have to fully embrace and recognize that I am a white male. 
I have that privilege to be able to speak in the white male community. So I need to use that privilege and use that connection that I have that you know, others don't, mm. which was really tough for me to understand. And I finally got it, but I still struggle. Like I still struggle. I still get emotional about a lot of this stuff. I mean, I'm an emotional guy anyway, but you know, I just, I get emotional about when these types of things happen and, and hear the things that people say that I now have finally felt brave enough to be able to call out. I feel um, comfortable enough to be, to embrace my vulnerability of, of saying, I, I don't understand that, you know, please help me. And recognizing too, that one of the things I've recognized by working with some of my colleagues who have become dear friends of mine is that it's, I can't go to them and say, Hey, I, I need to learn more about black culture, or I need to learn more about the, the experiences you've had. So just tell me, um, that I need to do the homework first. I need to be able to show this particular friend of mine. Um, I need to be able to show her that I am doing the heavy work too, that I'm not just relying on people of color to tell me what I need to do, if that makes sense. And that we've developed that kind of friendship and relationship where she can tell me that. And I know she's not telling me that as a way to just go away. It's a, no, Ian, you have to be willing to do the work too, because it helps her because, you know, as she's explained to me and other friends of mine within the black community explaining they're tired, you know, and I, I remember recently talking to Anne with wanting to watch some of the, the movies that are being promoted to be able to see the documentaries and things and watching them and how some days it's like, I think to myself, Oh, I'm just, I'm so tired. And, you know, with the, the, the wearing down with the pandemic and the, the murders of black men in our streets and everything. And just, you know, feeling so anxious about stuff that it's just like, I just, you know, I just want a night to not worry about it. And then years ago I would just be like, Oh, whatever. But now I realize that's my white privilege hmm. is that I can turn that off. That the people who I want to help or the, the, the changes I hope that I could potentially impact to be able to help people of color and those in the black community, especially that they can't turn that off. Right. Mm -hmm. This is there with them forever. And, and I have that privilege of being able to say, Oh, this is a little tough for me right now. I just need to back away. Hmm. That was the best definition I heard that somebody told me of white privilege is the ability to walk away. Well, and if I can just add to that, we, with our children, they're nine, right? We have boy, girl twins and we've started talking to them more uh, pointedly about what happened with George Floyd and talked about what happened. And it was, you know, soon after it happened, I was really emotional, just really struggling um, with just everything. And, and it was a Sunday after a church service and I cried throughout almost the entire sermon. And, um, and it was obviously during the pandemic. And so Anne said, well, I want to take kids out. Why don't we let you stay home and, and just rest a little bit? And, and, you know, and meditate and those types of things. And so I, I did. And so when they were coming back, she kind of talked a little bit about it. And one of the examples she used is, and I, I thought this was brilliant, is that to help them kind of understand white privilege, especially white male privilege, is they said, or she explained to them that when the four of us are together as a family and, and we walk into a store, the store owners most likely do not, are almost guarantee, they don't do a double take when I walk in that door and get nervous. Right. There's not a, oh my gosh, this, this white guy just walked in. They're not going to do that to my son either. 
but they're going to do that to my, my friend, Danny, who's a black male, you know, and, and my other friends who are black males, they're going to do that to them. And they're going to do that to all people of color is that that's, and helping them understand that's the privilege that we have that we, we don't even know. Yeah. Thank you for, you know, for sharing and being vulnerable and open about your, um, your journey that you're continuing on and for not either jumping on or jumping off a bandwagon that's uncomfortable. Um, and I also want to, you know, sort of say thank you to Kendra for being generous with inviting us to continue exploring our own selves and going into dialogue. But I also want to be conscientious and um, give Kendra also some time because I know that you've had some stories. Um, and so mm-hmm. it'd be good to hear, good to hear those too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as I said, I am from Texas and I think my upbringing through childhood and into my early college years, or even most of undergrad for me probably, um, was just this underlying assumption, a prescriptive assumption that like you should be colorblind. And that, I don't even know if people used the term colorblind because nobody really talked about race. It was only when I became a graduate student in my master's especially, did I learn anything like complex about the terminology that addresses race and racism. But as a kid, I, you know, my, my parents would say things to me like, we treat everyone with respect and we treat everyone equally. And it was just assumed and in different moments, you know, I would have these circumstances in which I would be reminded that, you know, just because someone is black or brown, like whatever their skin color, we are all like children of God was usually what would be said to me because a lot of these situations were happening um, in the church. And and it, it's, I just want to like pause for a moment to just like talk about um, like what colorblindness means and how it's so, I think it, people are becoming more aware of why it's a problem, um, but it's still something that's really easy to misunderstand because on the face of it, it looks like a good thing. Like, oh yeah, colorblind means you just like, I I don't see that you're black and you don't see that I'm white. Like we just treat each other equally. But the problem is that a lot of racism and like racist structures are contingent upon implicit biases and upon power structures that we can't just change by consciously deciding that we're going to treat a black person kindly. And so colorblindness allows us to say that we're treating everyone equally while still participating, whether consciously or unconsciously, in structures of racism. And so I think an example I could give is just that if if we are working in the framework of um, colorblindness, then we can look at a police officer who's standing on the neck of a black person and say, they're doing that because that person on the ground did something bad. It's not because they're black. That cop is standing on them because they did a bad thing. And so that's like the colorblind narrative. But if you actually like wipe that away and acknowledge the role of race in society and in culture, 
then you'll see that like it's not just about what an individual did did or didn't do. It's also important to understand like was the cop white? Was the man on the ground black? And like how could that have made a difference in the outcome of that situation? Um, and so it's but that's not even enough. That's just an acknowledgement that like colorblindness allows white people to ignore racism. Hmm. And exactly. Ultimately, that's not actually very helpful, even though it can feel like the best thing to do because it's easy to just say, let's treat everyone equally. But unfortunately, human minds have uh, there's like a more insidious version of um, racism that it just doesn't matter what you consciously believe. And this was one of the next steps of my own journey was uh, becoming a college student, go, moving to Boston, actually, from uh, Texas. And I entered my master's and had no idea how much I would learn in the next two years doing my master's of theological studies um, about race. It was a highlight of our incoming master's class. And it was, um, there were many fraught classroom discussions. It was incredibly difficult and there was so much growth, but also so much anger and so much like unlearning and frustration and just like explosiveness and like all the things, <laughs> um, all the messiness of like learning about uh, race and racism as white people um, and the, the people of color in our class were feeling the frustrations of minority peoples who have to like carry the burden of education for mm. a majority uh, group. And so, th but this was the, the real, I think, starting point for me to understand in a more complex way, like what colorblindness, what, like, what did colorblind mean? And like, why was that a part of my identity growing up in Texas? And even as a kid, like I had, I went to a, a school for many years that um, it wasn't, I mean, a lot of my surroundings were very white, of course, but it was um, also true that in some of my school experiences, there were like larger demographics of black and Hispanic people compared to other schools like down the road. And, but that, that isn't enough. Like it, it's the, the white person thing to do to be like, well, I have black friends. So, you know, <laughs> like the, I'm not racist, but th that's not the point either. And so I finally, as a master's student, I thought that because I had finally learned some terminology and I'd learned how to talk about like uh, colorblindness and I'd learned like what white privilege was, um, that that meant that I could finally like not be racist. <laughs> <laughs> and then one day I, uh, we were in a class and it was like part of our homework or something to take uh, the implicit association tests through Harvard. You can Google these and find them easily, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Um, there's a race version, a gender version. There might be one or two others. But um, I went home and I searched for the implicit association test and took the race version. And if you've never taken this test, I highly recommend it. It's so interesting and enlightening just to understand how like brains work. It'll be, um, it'll be in the show notes, so you don't need to go search for it. Great, great. Thanks, Rachel. Um, 
So I took this test and basically what it shows you is um, it's a it's like a matching game. And in this race version, you have a series of um, black and white faces that appear on a screen and you sitting at your keyboard as fast as you can are trying to match the faces with a series of words. And sometimes the words are, you know, sort of like neutral, meaningless words, like, like flower or something. But some of the words are words like good, beautiful, wow, bad, ugly. And when I got to the end of the test, I started to realize what was happening. And I could feel that my fingers would more quickly click a good or pretty word. I, I could more quickly type a button that selected good, pretty, positively valenced words when they were matched with white faces. Wow. And it took my brain longer to signal to my finger to push a button on my keyboard hmm. when the word bad or ugly uh, popped up and I had to match that to a white face. But I could do <sighs> bad, ugly, negatively valence words much faster if I was matching them to uh, a black or brown face. And as I started to realize this, in the middle of taking this test, I was horrified. And I, I started like thinking about it, which is not what you're supposed to do. This is something that's a <laughs> right. reaction test. Like you're supposed to go as fast as you can. But I started slowing down my finger to match the, <laughs> like cheating the <laughs> test so that I could get to the end and have like, you're not a racist. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I- uh, How'd that work out for you? It, it didn't matter. I got to the end and I- I got your colorblind. I got the result that said you have minimal- uh, racial bias, and I just felt like I could, like obviously I cheated. Like I started <laughs> slowing down my finger at the end. Like I, <laughs> this is meaningless, and I need to go like sit in a corner with my like <laughs> my nose in the corner. Um, but that was such an eye-opening experience for me because I realized that, and since then have um, come into wow. contact with like scholars and been part of conversations that have helped me to learn that like in order to overcome and change systems of racial injustice, people like we, and especially we white people just need to accept that like racism is in us. It is there. Mm -hmm. It doesn't like, that's not a matter of me trying to like shame anyone. It's just there. Like our brains create biases because of the the media representations that we consume every day. It's just our brains are creating these connections that make it easier for us to associate good things with white people. And it's really important to know that that happens and it, it helps us to be more capable to like overcorrect for those things and to be more responsible individuals. But that is only like one part of it. Um, that's still only just thinking about like you as an individual. And in order to like undo that kind of learning that becomes so widespread culturally, we have to change the systems um, rather than trying to change the people. Because even though I now, like anybody who can say, like I believe white and black people should be treated equally, 
like there's still these racist connections in our in our brains and those are informed by the systems that we create and so i think that this was like revolutionary for me as a white person and i felt like you know in the moment i felt like oh i've discovered something amazing and you know my uh friends and colleagues in the classroom who are you know like black or brown people are like yeah <laughs> 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 Look at you. Yeah. Welcome, Welcome to the club. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You've made it to kindergarten. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and so I think that that is um, another thing that I want to say, which is this other uh, thing that was really enlightening for me as someone like making that journey as a graduate student and learning about like the importance of terms and how I, I think Ian had expressed this too, where it was really confusing to me to try and stumble through on my own some conversations about racism because I started to realize people were talking past each other. Like half the room would be talking mm-hmm. about individual racism. Mm-hmm. Like you treated that person badly because they were this color. Mm-hmm. And the, the other half of the room was talking about systematic racism. And that, w- but when people of those different definitional starting points would talk to each other they would never clarify like what what they meant by racism and so they would just use the word racism but the understandings behind that word were either of a, like the individual variety or of the systemic variety and right. unless you say that out loud it's confusing to have a conversation because mm-hmm. then like people who are talking about systematic racism become very frustrated when they're talking to someone who's saying things like black people can be racist against white people. And when you're talking about systematic racism, like, no, (laughs) (laughs) but if you're just talking about like individual encounters with each other, like that's, it's just different. And it's not usually what people who are really in the thick of this work are talking about, like what people are really trying to change. If you're, if you're in if you're like a leading scholar of race and racism, like you're thinking mostly about systemic structures. And yeah, so these were some of, and and I also like, I think I've already demonstrated much of the like shortcomings of my own journey, but I also just want to put it out there that like I, I have certainly been the like well-meaning white person in many situations. And I remember like the first time that I ever saw a black woman who was wearing an Afro, I had never seen that in real life before because as a kid, um, a lot of, or most Mm. of the black women that I was surrounded by wore their hair in braids or would get a perm and so have a a straight style of their hair. And um, the first time that I ever saw a black woman with just like a, a full out Afro, I was like curious by that and interested and like went up to her and talked to her about her hair and like the thing that white women are not supposed to do, I did it and was just like so naively like fascinated and just wanted to like tell her it was beautiful and like ask her questions. And this is someone that I um, ended up becoming friends with over the years, Um, not like super close friends, but you know, it was just like over the years you hear um, black women in particular express the exhaustion of just like white women don't 
don't like talk to us about our hair. Don't talk to us about things that are like interesting to you, but we have to deal with every day, like white people expressing mm. this like, <laughs> you know, exotic interest in our bodies and in our like ways of being. Um, and so that like, those are things that at the time as a white person, it can feel like frustrating and confusing to be like, well, I didn't know, <laughs> but right. you know, like it's messy and you just have to accept that like you make mistakes and you move on and like apologize when you do the stupid things, but mm-hmm. also like take responsibility and try to to affect change at a larger level and don't get stuck wallowing in the mm-hmm. stupid things that we do as white people because it doesn't help anybody. <laughs> that's my confession that this this i i was ignorant of race and racism and then i was learned um you know probably through sociology classes in college and then i became a good white who, <laughs> who could label all of the systemic problems and housing and education and uh, law and justice and all that stuff and knew the right words to fight for and knew the right authors to suggest um, and was one of the good ones who did the right things. And uh, really only recently, have pr- if I'm being honest with you, probably just the past couple of months, recognized that what I had been doing was making one's individual view of race into a very core moral issue that I could think of myself as having been sanctified from the sin of racism Hmm. by being able to identify it and to speak against it. And that, that absolved me of all guilt and sin. And those ignorant white folks, both the ones who said, I'm colorblind, I don't see race, and those who say straight up, like, I don't trust black people, they are the morally inferior ones. And I think I I, I would never have said that, but it's something that I've realized in myself. And what what I've come to terms with and what feels a lot more comfortable and true and good and right is that racism in us is not a moral failing. It is, it is a matter of how we are wired together. And it's not something that we will ever completely overcome. And I love your story of, of that implicit bias test, because as you're explaining that bias test, I was thinking in my head about taking it and how like, oh, this isn't going to work for me because I know what it's trying to do. And I'm totally going to be like, well, black is beautiful and white is bad. And I'm going to switch it around. But the fact that you had to like, think about it, and then change your actions that were built in totally just proves this point that we are like, this is a part of who we are. And it's going to always be a part of who we are. And then what we need to do move to move forward is to just admit that it's who we are and we're going to try to intentionally be better. Like this is the whole beauty of church is that we come together and 
we all come to into this into this place and we say, hey, we're all sinners. We're all in need of grace. We're all going to screw up. No one here is perfect. Nobody has achieved full righteousness. Let's do this thing together. Like the church is a field hospital, not a, uh, a, a place for sanctified saints. And like we've got that down in the church for like what we call sin, but we haven't quite figured out how to frame that in terms of our own implicit biases and racism. And that has just just completely transformed the way that I approach this. And I'm sorry to everyone who um, I have just been a well-meaning and patronizing um, <laughs> presence in, in your life. Um, and now we just go. And I think right? that's it. That's it with recognition. You know, that was one of the things I struggle with is recognizing the biases within myself and the racist thoughts within my own head that would happen. And then, so, you know, doing a lot of reflection and, and focus on, okay, what is it that I do? And, and it, and many, again, this is the implicit part, not even realizing I'm doing it, but as I've learned more and more, recognizing where it is, I, I need to, you know, for personal reasons, do better. And then telling people it's okay, especially white males to recognize the fact that, you know what, you're a racist. You grew up in that system. You have racist thoughts. Okay. Now educate yourself and see how can you make things better for others, right? How is it you can help? How can you be part of the solution instead of just saying, oh, I'm racist, oh, well, and then move on. And so that's what, when I try talking with others about this and we have conversations, is letting them know that to me, one of the first steps you got to do is you got to figure out, you got to look inside before you then try and, and recognize that. You know, when you're trying to go in a community as a white male, a community, you know, a black community to try to do something that, are you coming off as the white savior? Thinking that you're doing something good, but you may not really be long-term doing something good. And that's been really challenging for me to figure out. But I feel like being able to admit that it, I struggle with it and that I, but I'm working on it and I'm trying to get better and trying to help others and you know, to see that that is a good process, right? Yeah, yeah, I think. <laughs> Go ahead, Kendra. <laughs> um, I just wanted to add another um, like term that is something I, I had had been thinking about for several years, but only recently like have have uh, I guess a sort of new way to talk about it. Um, and it's because of Ibram X. Kendi, who is a, a leading scholar oh, yeah. of race and racism. And he is actually taking up a new appointment at Boston University and will uh, be in charge of the BU Center for um, Anti-Racism Research. And the way that he recommends that people talk about uh, race and racism is to say that if you are doing your work to fight racial injustice, it's not that you should call yourself not racist but you should call yourself anti-racist. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, a recognition of, of what we've already been talking about is that like we know these systems are in place even when we recognize them, but that's not enough. And so you have to be 
active and taking the responsibility of change upon your shoulders and that that is anti-racist work and we can all strive to be anti-racist, but it's not necessarily helpful to try to achieve like not racist status. Right. That's that's exactly what I was going to say too, <laughs> right? That, that, that we used to think racist, it used to be binary, racist or not racist, right? And we all prided ourselves in like, I'm not racist. Like, good job. Like, you've made it to not racist. And, and we, we put it to bed. But now we're realizing that there needs to be, like, being not racist is passive. Mm-hmm. And in order for any change to happen in any system, it needs to have an action and actionable things. Um, at true change comes from true action. So in order to be to change the system that we're in or even to change for ourselves, whether we're talking individual racism or systemic racism, we need to be anti-racist. And I think that's one of the places that I'm you know, I was I was very, you know, proud of myself. I was not a racist. Like I <laughs> I I felt good about that. And similar to Zach and many other people in the country, these last few months have well, I say last few months, God, it's been it's been five weeks. Right? The murder of George Floyd happened at the end of May and it's just the beginning of July. We're really only talking like a month and a half at this point. And and rather than having the guilt of why didn't I do this sooner, I say, you know what? I didn't. I own that mm. and I'm doing it now. And how like, let me make this an action now. And the idea of saying, well, I'm not racist versus anti-racist means make sure that you're, the books that you're reading, the podcasts you're listening to, the newspapers that you're reading, the places that you go, if you sit on a panel, make sure that there are, that there's um, representation, make sure right, those, and, and inviting those questions, Right to to remove the system that is in place to make an action for that, whether that's individual or systemic, and I think that's that's the place we need to go. And on one hand, forgiving ourselves for taking this long to get here, and on the other hand, just moving forward in in however way we're able to, right? Whatever you know, how whatever your life looks like. And whatever interactions you have, we can all do something to take an action. So I think, yeah, I think it's 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 an action that needs to be taken. And I'm really mm-hmm. that's really exciting, Kendra, that that he will be at BU. Yeah, I think that that town hall meeting I referenced earlier. One of the things that came out of that was uh, our department funded for uh, graduate students who are interested in doing like a faculty student reading group. Um, one of Kendi's books will be like in that rotation. So I I have never read any of his stuff, but I think it's exciting now that he's like part of the BU community. It'll be uh, a really great thing to be more involved in. And I I think that like to your point, Rachel, I I just want to echo like the importance of knowing like what systems, like becoming aware of what systems we can actually make a difference in um, because I think that feels really overwhelming to people. They think, well, I can be nicer, but like, what does it actually mean to um, like change a system? Like what that feels so abstract in a lot of ways. And that, you know, it requires, I think, more 
commitment to like understand what Mm -hmm. that means and what it means for each of us. Um, And of course, like there are some things all of us could be like more involved in, you know, like getting involved in local politics and actually like supporting policies and doing that kind of work just as a citizen. Um, (laughs) And I, I like will be the first to say that I find that sometimes like very overwhelming and I'm like unsure how to to start in some cases. But I also think, you know, that may perhaps the easier thing for someone like me to think about is just, you know, I'm in the academy and I really hope that one day I will be able to teach. And so thinking about like, what kind of syllabus can I create to give representation? Because that's, Mm -hmm. that's one system that has, um, you know, historically been racist is that we, we tell history from the perspective of like, white America, but like white American history is not entirely American. Like you can't, you can't fully say something is American history if you're not taking into account the history of African Americans. And that is something um, in my, like in the last couple of years, I have come across um, Charles H. Long, who actually just died this year. Um, but it was a, a scholar in religious studies who talked a lot about race and racism and how how that intersects with the discipline of religious studies and uh, our understanding of um, American religious history. And um, he was influenced a, a lot by W.E.B. Du Bois. And he talks, uh, Charles Long talks about how for, and this I think is true for other disciplines, but for religious studies, it's not enough for a religious studies scholar or even a historian or, you know, an art study, like whatever your discipline, it's not enough to just have like the black section on your syllabus. Like this week, we're going to talk about the black perspective, but Long suggests for religious studies, a, a fundamental integration, like from the ground up that makes black voices part of the center of the conversation. Um, and that that requires more work. And um, it's it's a lot harder than just tacking on like a couple of extras and making those the representative voices. But it's work that's worth doing because it's more holistic and um, representative, I think. It's also worth noting that we um, we don't have to figure out how to dismantle the racist systems because people have already been telling us how to dismantle the racist systems yep. since the racist systems were built. It's just that we now, now we just need to listen. And so a lot of this is just instead of allowing ourselves to be overwhelmed and intimidated by the work ahead, to simply say, um, what have these voices of people of color been telling us all along? And how can we just bear down and do the work? And so uh, I'm, I'm excited for the next couple of weeks. We're going to be talking a lot about how these systems were built. Because uh, uh, honestly, a lot of these systems were built with religious and scientific justifications. Um, I'm not going to say it was built by science or by religion, um, though they were propped up by both. And so there are people who are dismantling the systems using the same tools that built them. And that's 
um, really exciting. And we really want to highlight a lot of that work. We're going to be going into some of the disparities in in healthcare, in environment, in, in the way that the scriptures have been used. We're going to be partnering with some people, hopefully working out how um, talking environmental justice with the Color Correction podcast that you heard last week. Hopefully you heard last week. If you haven't, you definitely need to go back and listen to that episode <laughs> um, and then listen to a lot of their other episodes as well. They have some really helpful uh, dialogue in there. And I, I think in many ways, not adding new information to the dialogue or new insights or new brilliance, but just helping you to see what's already out there, what's already been done, what's already been discussed, and encouraging us all to continue doing that good and important work. This has been episode 45 of the Down the Wormhole podcast. Hey, have you joined the Down the Wormhole Conversations Facebook group yet? You really should. We'd love to hear your own stories this week, and we promise to hold them with grace and with honor as best as we can. There's a link in the show notes along with links to further reading and contact information as well. Also, a big thanks as always to our supporters on Patreon, whose generous donations make this podcast happen. Next week, we're going biblical as we get into the ways that scripture has been used to prop up injustice as well as to overcome it. We're talking about Moses's black wife, Paul's passive-aggressive letter to a slave owner, Jesus's casual racism, and why white folks love misquoting MLK. It should be fun, then challenging, then a little dangerous. You know, right in that sweet spot. And hey, normally I like to sign off with an out-of-context quote from the episode, but I wanted to give Rachel the last word. Because did you catch this gem back at the 69-minute mark? I think it's worth repeating. And and rather than having the guilt of, why didn't I do this sooner? I say, you know what? I did it. I own that. And I'm doing it now.